Join me in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning. And I'll start this morning in our prayer for praying for Pastor Rico Gutierrez, who's a pastor of First Baptist Church in Aurora, Colorado. Father, I pray that as he is prepared this week to speak your word to the congregation there, that you would have first of all have spoken into his life and into his marriage. Father, I pray that you bless Rico and his wife, Cece, and the ministry that they're involved in there, all the international groups that are involved in that community. Father, I also lift up this morning the city council here in Greenville. Father, I pray that you would guide them in their decisions. Father, for those that do belong to you, I pray that they would honor you and glorify you in all that they do and all that they say. Father, also lift up Ben and Christy McGraw, their family is on sabbatical. Father, I pray that Ben would find not only sabbatical rest, but Sabbath rest in Jesus. Father, I pray for Scott Sutton, Lindsay, and their family as they are leading this summer that you would strengthen them. Father, not only give Scott the wisdom and the strength to lead this fellowship along with Brad, but also have time for his family and to shepherd his family well. Father, I pray for Brad and Christy Cardwell. There's, Brad is preparing to go to Madrid this next week. Father, I pray that you would guide him, strengthen him. Father, help him walk rightly with you in a different country. And Father, I pray that while he's gone, that Christy and the children be cared for, provided for, protected by you. Father, also lift up our families who are in various places overseas for Derek and Casey Thornton, for Lance and Sarah Keeling, their family, for Jake and Stephanie Huck, for their family. Father, I also want to thank you for all that happened in Austin, Texas this last week. Father, we give you praise for the decisions that were made. It's been a strong week for unborn children and for all who value life. Father, I pray for our senators and representatives as they continue to make decisions that will impact not only our lives, but the lives of the unborn children in the future. Father, thank you for loving us. I pray that we recognize that you are here. You are here because of who you are, not because of who we are. Father, you promise us that the Holy Spirit will lead us into the truth of your word, and that's my prayer this morning, that we hear the truth of your word from the Holy Spirit. Father, move me out of the way. Speak to the hearts of this people. That includes me this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Now, I've had, I've had a unique experience over the last several months. Uh, Kendra and I have been at Cross Point here for a little over eight years. And, and I've got to tell you, I've always loved the plurality of leadership that we enjoy here at Cross Point. The elders with the deacons, that plurality of leadership is very strong. 
But I've experienced something over the last two months I've never experienced before. And that's preparing for the sermon today and God willing for next week. Where I've had men sit with me and vet this sermon. I expected them to tear it apart a little bit, but more than that, they were encouraging. They provided some guidance, some ideas. Think about this, think about this. And dear people, I've never experienced that before. Always in the past, I would pray through a passage that I was going to preach somewhere. I would most often run it by Kendra, and she would, with her wisdom, would guide me some, and that would be pretty much it. Um, i got to tell you, having, having four men sit with me through this process has been a sweet, sweet process. One of the things that, that Ben told me early on was, he said, Morris, you're going to be preaching out of Romans 8. He said, you need to lay some groundwork so it doesn't appear that we're just parachuting into chapter 8 cold. So I want to do that. We're going to be reading in just a few minutes out of Romans 8, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. I want to get you to go ahead and turn there. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, look under the seat in front of you. There's racks there. There's a Bible. should be there. If you don't have a Bible this morning, let me invite you to take that Bible, put your name in it, take it home. That's yours, and that's yours as a gift from us here at Cross Point. While you're turning to Romans 8, I want to go over a little bit of, of, of history, a little bit of background. First of all, the church in Rome was not founded by Paul, as a lot of people have said in the past. In fact, Paul, by historical record, had never been to the church in Rome. The church in Rome probably got its start from people, from Jewish people who lived in Rome, who had gone to Jerusalem, and on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus was crucified, and spent 40 days on the earth, and then ascended back to heaven. That Pentecost, when the disciples stood up and preached the word, there were undoubtedly people from Rome that heard that word. They became believers in Jesus Christ. Then they went back to Rome, and they established the church. God established the church through them. As in his other letters to various churches, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome, And he addressed some issues that had been a very common series of of issues that he had to address in other churches. For example, we know that there were Jewish believers in the church in Rome. We also know that there were Gentile believers in the church in Rome. Those two people groups were enough to create some areas of potential conflict that needed to be dealt with. They also apparently struggled with the ever-present issue that Paul dealt with in other fellowships. For example, circumcision or no circumcision. Keeping the festivals and the feasts and the food choices according to the Old Testament or freedom in, in what we do and what we eat. There was also the question of, is there a right walk with God simply by obeying the law of Moses. So Paul had some issues to address with the church in Rome. Now, Paul has spent the first half of this letter. We're kind of landing a little bit past the middle of this letter at the end of chapter 8. 
But he has spent the first part of this laying the groundwork that apart from God, there is no hope for an eternal life with God. Apart from God, there is no hope. There is no hope for a future with God through works. There is no hope for a future with God through birthright. Those don't count. He lays out the foundation that there is no excuses that will work when facing a holy God in that great white throne judgment. Apart from Christ, there, there is nothing. Paul even becomes very transparent in chapter 7. And reading through that again the last couple of weeks wrecked me again. Because Paul talked about his own struggles. He says, what I want to do, I don't do. The very things that I hate are the things that I practice. And I got to tell you, folks, it sounded real familiar. It's in my skin. And that was tough. It's tough on a daily basis. But then the hope that he provides Well, first of all, before he provides the hope, he provides a really tough label, and he calls himself a miserable wretch. Okay, and I had to own that label as well. But then in the same breath, he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thank God it is Jesus Christ who does. We can rejoice in that. I spent some time rejoicing in that. And then I remembered the earlier part of chapter 7, that I don't practice the things that I want to practice and I do the things that I hate to do. And so I had to go back through that whole cycle again. And we do that on a daily basis. But we can do that because of who Jesus Christ is. And that is a thanksgiving. That is a praise God. That will elicit amens. Now in chapter 8, Paul continues to reveal the truth of the hope that we have from God through Jesus Christ In Romans 8 verse 3 he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Let's move to our text this morning. Romans 8 verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? Now, the these things is everything that he's talked about from the very beginning of the letter up until this point. But more inclusively and more specifically, we're going to be talking about that. He's talking about the privileges of the believers. He lays those out, and we're going to be talking about those in a little bit. So that's these things that he's speaking of here. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I've been digging into this passage over the past several months, again, I was floored in my heart of the things that Christ has done for us. And not because we're worthy of that, but because he loves us. He loved us and he does love us. In Romans 5, 8, we see this stated very clearly. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Also encapsulated in Romans chapter 8, God reveals the facts through Paul that for the believer, and this morning, if you are a walking, believing, faithing in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you can personalize these following statements that I'm about to, that I'm about to, to speak to you. You can make these your own. And I challenge you to do that. God has known me before, the, before all of creation. He has known me. Before the creation of time, he predestined me. He called me. He justified me. He glorified me. He adopted me. And because of that adoption, I can call him Abba, Father. It's a term of endearment. Very easily translated the word Daddy. That we can call our God that term of endearment because we're adopted. What an incredible privilege. And that list of privileges should create in us a holy awe. And because of that, in verse 32 of Romans chapter 8, he says that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, I could probably stop there this morning, but I'm not going to. That in itself is just an incredible, incredible truth that we can live by. The verse I want to focus on this morning is actually verse 33. And hopefully, now having established a little bit better understanding of the context and the content that we've seen in the first part of this letter, seeing the list of incredible things that Jesus accomplished for us and blessings from God. Now we can dig into this focal statement that that I want to look at in verse 33 that says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now look at this this morning. Periodically, I'm going to dive into a little bit different context with a man that's revealed in Scripture. 
or about a man that's revealed in Scripture. There's a man by the name of Onesimus I want you to consider. Onesimus was a Greek slave who had a really kind of funny name. And I I really had to practice that name to make sure that I was saying it correctly because you can get tongue-tied sometimes. But Onesimus was a Greek slave that belonged to a a man named Philemon. Philemon was a brother of Paul in Christ. And while Paul was imprisoned, somehow or another, he met Onesimus. Now, we're not told about the meeting or how it took place, but we know that the meeting took place. Because in that meeting, Paul was able to share with Onesimus the truth of who Jesus Christ is and the gospel. As a result of that, Onesimus became a believer in Jesus Christ, and he was saved. As a result of that, Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. Because remember, Onesimus was a runaway slave. And to be right in all things, he had to go back to his master. But we see as we read through the, through the letter to Philemon in the New Testament that Paul is writing this to Philemon and he's asking Philemon to not only accept Onesimus back, who was once a worthless slave, but to take him back as a brother. I was reading one, one commentary. In fact, just this last week, I saw, I saw this little this, this, this statement by this commentator, and he said, you know, if, if I had been Philemon and I had read Paul's letter, it was written to me, he said, I think I'd have been mad. You know, because Paul kind of gets in his face a little bit. And he said, and on the flip side, if I was Onesimus and looking over Paul's shoulder, I'd be saying, um, could you say that a little stronger? <laughs> could you add a little bit more to protect me? You know, so we, we, we personalize that and we see what's going on. But Philemon is addressed by Paul and Paul intercedes with Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. Not only for clemency to have his guilt removed, but then to accept him as a brother. Now, we're going to go back to Onesimus a little bit later. Back to Romans 8. In verse 33, Paul asks a question. And in reality, in light of all that Paul has revealed in these first eight chapters of Romans, when we get to, when we get to verse 33 of chapter 8, it's really a rhetorical question. The, the readers, including us this morning, we already know what the answer is. Paul didn't have to, to, to answer the question. The question is, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The fact that all that's been given to us, the fact that God chose us, the fact that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, was resurrected, spent 40 days here on the earth, ascended back to heaven, sits on the right side of the throne of God as our mediator, as our advocate, as our paraclete. Because of all of that, the question, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Crickets. Nobody. Not one person, not one created being in all of the universe can bring a charge against God's elect because of what Jesus accomplished. It's another one of those wow moments.
we see this truth revealed also in a little bit different aspect in Hebrews 2.14. Now, if you've been here at Crosspoint for a while, you know that we've been low-crawling through Hebrews by our senior pastor, Ben McGraw. And a little over a year ago, Ben preached through this passage. It's been a couple of weeks going through Hebrews 2.14. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in blood and flesh, in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus Christ was able, by the life that he lived as a human being, a perfect life, not one single sin, not one wrong thought. He kept the law perfectly. And he was able to then destroy the devil. Now, as, as Ben pointed out in, in April of last year, the word destroy sounds like completely obliterated, but we know that Satan's not completely obliterated, not yet. But the word destroy could be rightly translated rendered idle. And to render someone idle means you just strip them of all that they had before. Okay. Picture either you have a two-year-old child or you've been around one recently. If you have a two-year-old child in the middle of a, of a room and they're surrounded by toys, that child is active and busy and many times if they have a, an empty box, they're playing with the box more than they are the toy. We see that a lot. Um, but they're, 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 they're engaged in everything around them and they're busy doing stuff. But then you take all of the toys out of the room. You completely clear the room. No furnishings, no furniture, no toys, no nothing. And the child is sitting in the middle of the floor. Just kind of looking around. There's nothing for him to do. The child has been rendered idle. That's the picture of what Jesus did with Satan in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension back to heaven. I would encourage you to go back at some point and listen to the sermons that, that Ben preached out of Hebrews 2.14. That was actually April 1st and April the 8th of 2012. And they're in the, they're in the, the archive section of the Crosspoint website. So knowing this, knowing that Satan has been rendered idle, again, the question from Paul, who can bring a charge against God's elect? No one, not even the accuser. He has been rendered idle. Now, we know from Scripture that Satan has had the role of the accuser of the brethren since sometime in eternity past. We see that in Job chapter 1, where Satan, in two separate conversations with God in the throne room, is accusing Job, and God allows Satan to test Job prove a point that God is worthy of worship regardless of what happened in Job's life and he knew that Job would, would follow through on that turn to Revelation 12 verse 10 Revelation 12 verse 10 it says I heard a loud voice in heaven saying 
Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. But the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses him day and night before God. This truth is clearly stated in Revelation. There's no doubt what that's saying. The accuser has been thrown down. His job has been to accuse the brethren day and night. Now, I think we need to address the question, and it's a question that has been debated long and often in, in biblical circles and is even being debated these days in time. The question is this. Was Satan being thrown down, being rendered idle, is that a future event? Or is that an event that's already taken place? I believe, things that I've read, many scholars have, have said, Ben McGraw preached this, that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, I believe this event's already taken place. Because again, go back to Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. I believe that event's already taken place. Satan's been rendered idle. Therefore, Satan has no voice against us because of the God-glorifying redemptive work of Jesus Christ due to his sacrifice. And because of that sacrifice, we share, we live in, we revel in the privileges of the believer. It's revealed in Romans 8. Of being called, being foreknown, being predestined, being conformed to the image of his son, being one of the many brethren, being justified, being glorified. And having our prayers delivered to the throne room by the Holy Spirit. We enjoy those privileges because of Jesus Christ. Now picture again Onesimus. Bring Onesimus back into the picture here. While he had an accuser in life, he had an owner, Philemon. Onesimus had been a worthless slave. Paul even said of Onesimus, he was once worthless to you. And he was a worthless slave that then ran away. He wasn't just a worthless slave that stayed and did nothing. He was a worthless slave that ran away. He had an accuser in Philemon. He could have easily been brought before the local magistrate and Onesimus would have had to stand there with Philemon accusing him and the magistrate could have easily dropped the hammer, said guilty, and he would have been executed for being a runaway slave. Transition this to the spiritual realm from the physical realm. What position does Onesimus have standing before a holy God? There is no accuser. There is no one to accuse Onesimus because of what Jesus did. And he stands before a holy God. Now in addition to this list of privileges that I went through, there's an additional privilege that we see in Romans 5 2. I'm going to ask you to turn there. Romans 5 2. Actually, it's Romans 5 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So there's, there's two parts of this. First of all, because of the fact that we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Before we're justified by faith in Christ Jesus, we are absolute enemies of God. We are sworn enemies of God. There's nothing we can do to gain that access. But when we're justified in, by faith, we are no longer enemies. We're adopted. The enemy label has been removed. That in itself is incredible. But the next thing it says is that we have obtained access by faith. Now this word in the Greek language, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. I practiced it for two weeks and I still can't say it. So it didn't really matter. But it literally means it's favored access. This favored access is an admission to the throne room in heaven. And it's not just an admission. When you think about and, and try to put yourself in the context of a throne room. I know it's hard because we don't have a throne room in Greenville that we can go visit. I don't know of one in the United States that we could go see. It's just not in our culture. So there's a lot of things that, that the scripture speaks of in the throne room that we really have a hard time putting ourselves into that context. But I'm challenging you to do that. Try to picture maybe you've seen on in a movie or something where there's a throne room. Okay. And you can have several types of access. You can have access where you're tossed in front of the king as a guilty criminal. You're laying there on the floor and then you're taken out and executed. We can also have access in this way. You go out to your mailbox one day, you open the mailbox, and there's a hand-engraved envelope, really fancy letters. You open it up, and it's a gold-engraved invitation to appear before the king. And so you get up that morning, and whichever you're prone to wear, even your best evening gown or your best tuxedo, whatever you're prone to wear when you're going to go see the king, you put that on, you go and you walk up to the door steward and you present the door steward your invitation. The door steward opens the door and that happens. Every one of you looked to see what the sound was. Picture the throne room. The, the door steward brings you in he bangs his staff three times. Everybody turns and looks. And the door steward says, introducing Bud Jones. Whoever it is that, that is being introduced, introduces you by name. That's what we have. We're not dragged in and thrown in front of the king as a convicted criminal needing execution. We're introduced in a special way. We have a favored access. Ephesians 2.18, it says, for through him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Again, in Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. See, we don't, we don't just get introduced to the throne room and slip in the door and try to hide behind somebody, hopefully bigger. I'd have to hide behind Aaron. You know, that's the only one that, can go, that could hide me right now, and not completely either, so we're, we're both in trouble. 
So it, it's not that kind of entrance. It's an entrance where you walk in the door, the door steward bangs his staff, and you stand there with confidence. Why? Because you have a hand-engraved gold invitation that you've been invited to the throne room. That's the picture of this favorite access. We are not born into this justification. We are not born into this access of special privilege. In reality, we are born in our nature as children of wrath. Turn to Ephesians 2. This has long been one of my favorite passages. We're going to read the first half which is not my favorite passage. We're going to focus there for just a minute. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, that were by nature and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, also in our natural state, our fleshly state, being an enemy of God, our flesh is actually hostile to God. There is nothing about our natural state that can give us access to God, much less trying to please God. It didn't happen. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8 said, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we cannot have that access on our own in any way, shape, or form. Now, let's go back to Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7. This is my favorite part of this passage. I want to read the first three verses again. You were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. A word kind of jumped out at me this morning when I was going through this before I got up here. And that's the word seated. The word seated doesn't mean this. Doesn't mean this at all. The word seated means set. Set in concrete, set in stone, unable to be moved. When you seat a piece of machinery in its place, it's there, it's not going anywhere. That's what the word seated is, is referring to. It's not talking about a, a, a position of luxury or a position of rest. It's talking about an absolute spot, can't be changed, undoable. 
It's there. So we are seated. We're there. And because of that, there is no one who can bring a charge against God's elect. Now again, bring Onesimus back into the picture here. He's guilty of his crime. Could have been charged. Could have been executed. Paul sent a letter to Philemon asking him to accept him, not only to excuse him of his charges, but to accept him as a brother. We know that this same Onesimus was listed through extra-biblical history, other historical records, that Onesimus was an elder. He was a bishop in the church in Ephesus. So we know he wasn't executed. And we know that he was restored by Philemon. And all the pictures point to, all the words point to, that he wasn't a slave when he served as a bishop at the church in Ephesus. He was a free man. So Philemon freed him. We also know that Onesimus was martyred later in his life because of his belief in Christ Jesus and his refusal to renounce his belief in Christ Jesus. He was executed. Another aspect to think about Paul's letter and remember that so often in Scripture as Ben and Scott and Brad point out so so frequently, there are things in Scripture that are a shadow of what Christ has done. And Paul does something in the letter to Philemon that's a shadow of what Christ does and has done for us. Because in verse 18 of the letter to Philemon, Paul says, If Onesimus, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul was willing to pay whatever Onesimus owed Philemon. You stop to think about it. That's a huge statement. Philemon could have said, okay, Onesimus owes me his life. So Paul, come on. I need your life in payment. Could have happened that way. Didn't. Could have. That same Onesimus now is justified by Paul's statement, his request, his offer to cover anything that was owed. He's justified to Philemon. But more importantly, spiritually, he's justified in Christ Jesus. The debt that Philemon had against Onesimus was off to be paid by Paul. The debt that Onesimus had to God was paid by Jesus Christ. Where Paul was just a shadow of paying a price for Onesimus' offense, Jesus now perfectly paid the full price owed to God, and Onesimus was introduced to the throne room of the one who created all things, the one who spoke creation into existence, the one who took absolutely nothing and created everything. Onesimus, once a worthless slave, now belonging to God, experiences that special introduction. See, Onesimus experienced more than that. And we experience more than that as we put ourselves in his sandals. So again, let me 
challenge you to put yourself in the context. Put yourself in the sandals of Onesimus. You're introduced to the throne room. You have the access because you have invitation. The door steward bangs his staff on the floor three times, gets everybody's attention, introduces you. Coming into the throne room by special access, by special invitation of Jesus Christ. That doesn't end there. Because what happens next is referred to as a manuduction. May or may not have ever heard of that word. Probably not. Because it's a word that's used specifically in a throne room setting. And again, we don't have a lot of throne rooms that we're introduced to. But the manuduction happens this way. There's always someone in the throne room that has extra special access to the king. This is someone that can maybe sitting at the right side of the king that can lean over and whisper in the king's ear and get very close without the guards getting really upset and nervous and shooting arrows into this person. He's the most trusted person in the throne room. Or that person could walk up behind the throne, lay his hands on the shoulders of the king and lean over and whisper something into his ear. That person in the throne room of a white, hot, holy God is Jesus Christ. He has that extra special favorite access because he is the Son of God, because he is God. And when you're introduced at the doors, Jesus may lean over and whisper to God, I'll be right back. I really don't think he whispers that because we know through perichoresis they're, they're one and the same and they all know what's going on. So, but just putting ourselves in a human context, he may lean over and whisper, I'll be right back. So he gets up, he goes down the steps of the throne, he walks across the throne room, everybody's watching Jesus, he walks up the steps to the door, and he takes you by the hand. He leads you down the steps, across the throne room, everybody's watching, and he leads you up to then the throne, introduces you to God. What position do you take? Several come to mind. In Psalms 1.5 it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So we may lay face down in front of a white hot holy God at the soles of his feet. However, because of the redemptive work of Christ Jesus, we stand. We're not laying out flat on our face before God. We stand, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. We stand before a living, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, white, hot, holy God. We can do that because we wear the righteousness of Christ. It's not our righteousness that we have on. It's the righteousness of Christ. Apart from that, we wouldn't be standing. Apart from that, we wouldn't even be there. I think in the presence of a white, hot, holy God, without the righteousness of Christ, we'd just be obliterated. We'd be gone. But we stand as if we are cleansed from every offense and every sin that we've ever committed, every wrong thought we've ever thought, 
Dear people, we stand because we have been cleansed. Not as if. We have been cleansed of every offense and every sin that we've ever committed. Of every wrong thought, we've been cleansed. And we stand before a holy God. Not thrown in front of him as a convicted criminal. But we stand. Now, the last question I want to ask this morning that I think bears answering. How does this truth of having no accuser, of being able to stand before a white, hot, holy God because of the righteousness of Christ that we wear, how does that impact me today? How does that, how does that impact me on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? How does that hit us during the week? Because we stand before God without guilt, without condemnation, without judgment, but with the privileges of the believer. We are then free from the bondage of sin. So today, whether you're facing whatever problems it is, maybe you have a child with an illness, and you you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Maybe you have a spouse with an illness and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Maybe you have no family and you think, if I'm in a crisis, who's going to help me? I have no family. Or if I have a crisis, do I even have any friends that will stand beside me? Maybe you've got problems in your marriage. Maybe you've got problems with a child. Maybe you've got problems with a parent. Regardless of what you're going through, and it may simply be, it doesn't matter what I do today, tomorrow's going to be a bad day because you know what's coming. And the anxiety of what is coming or what may be coming can just absolutely crush you. But remember this. Because Jesus, as our advocate, stands with us. We wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We can stand before a holy God. That makes what we're going through today and tomorrow and the next day and next week doable. God provides the grace. He provides the mercy for us to walk rightly with him. And that means through every circumstance. Now, please hear me. I am not minimizing what you may be going through. Because what you are going through is hard. It's bad. Maybe worse than bad. But dear people, compare standing before God, white, hot, holy God, cleansed, justified, glorified, made perfect in Christ Jesus. Compare that with what we're going through, it really doesn't stand up. I'm not saying what you're going through is not bad, but remember the privileges that we have in Christ Jesus. And that makes what we go through on a day-by-day basis doable. Dear folks, it will ease or even remove the anxiety 
of what we face. And why did Jesus do this? To glorify the Father. And in doing that, he redeemed our relationship with the Father and personalized that. Jesus redeemed the relationship between you and the Father. Between me and the Father. That we can approach God and call him Abba. Daddy. We stand We will stand and we are already standing before God redeemed and forgiven. There is no accuser. There is no voice accusing us before God. And rest in this fact. We stand. Before a holy God, our dignity and our honor restored. Our relationship with the Father restored. How is this secured? Again, through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that ushers us in. We get introduced to the throne room. Jesus walks over, takes us by the hand, walks across the throne room, takes us up the stairs to the throne, and presents us to the Father with a special manuduction. And we stand. Now, our standing is a posture that indicates movement. Okay? It's not sitting, it's not laying down, reclining as if the work has been done. But we stand like a soldier ready to move, waiting his orders from the supreme commander, able to move, trained to move, willing to move, ready to move. So when he says move, we're gone in an instant. We're, We're moving where he tells us to go ready to go at a moment's notice. We are covered by the righteousness of Christ because we're covered by his blood. We are wearing his righteousness and God looks at us and sees us through the filter of Christ Jesus' blood. We are cleansed and we are being cleansed. We have been made perfect and we are being made perfect. As we prepare to take the supper, Aaron and Stephanie, I want to ask you all to come on back up. Get ready for this part of our worship. We have a stage set for us by the knowledge of the fact that, first of all, Jesus destroyed Satan. He rendered him idle. Secondly, because we wear the righteousness of Christ, we are brought into the throne room of God by special access. We are introduced... And we have manuduction with the king. Christ himself takes us by the hand and leads us across the throne room floor. What an incredible picture. Now for centuries, the Hebrew people celebrated a meal to recognize the Passover. And it was this same Passover meal that Jesus served for his disciples on the night that he was going to be arrested. And it's a meal that we're going to observe in remembrance this morning in recognition of Jesus as the Messiah and as our Savior. Turn to Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. 
God's word says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the righteousness of sins. Jesus blessed the bread with a traditional blessing that had been handed down for generations, for centuries. And the blessing goes like this. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which translates house of bread. But more than that, in a matter of days, his body, the flesh, was going to be brought forth out of the earth and he overcame Satan's death grip on all of mankind. And because of that, we have life. The cup that Jesus listed was the third cup of Passover, which is referred to as the cup of redemption. To more fully understand the significance of that particular cup, we really need to look into the Jewish, the Jewish traditional wedding ceremony. And in that, when the dowry had been agreed upon by the bride's father and the bridegroom, the bridegroom and the bride then sealed the covenant by drinking from one cup, making the engagement official. So as we drink from the cup, that's what we're doing. Through his body and through his blood, Jesus, the Jewish bridegroom, had paid the only acceptable price for our sins, so that we become his bride for all eternity. This morning, if you are a believing, walking, faithing believer in Jesus Christ, I invite you to share the supper with us. If you are not, I invite you to observe. If you're not, I invite you also to come after the service, talk to me or Scott or the deacons or a small group shepherd. Find out what this relationship with Jesus Christ is all about. If you don't know, You need to hear that. You need to know that. While the elements are being passed out, deacons, go ahead and come forward. Start passing out the elements. While that's being passed out, I'm going to ask you to simply be in prayer, asking God to help you take this meal rightly. In remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us, we pray. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread, bringeth forth Jesus from the earth, take and eat. In remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us, that we are redeemed. We have special access to the throne room of God. We have manuduction by Jesus, and we stand before a white, hot, holy God. Take and drink. Join me in prayer. Father, we do come before you and we acknowledge, again, your presence here in this place. Father, we acknowledge that the only reason we have to stand before you is Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would take these truths of your word and wreck each one of us in our lives and you put us back together in the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ and we can stand rightly before you. Father, thank you for loving us. It's my prayer that what we do and what we say now, through this day, through this week, will bring you honor and glory and praise. In Jesus' name I pray these things.
Amen. Let's continue to worship. I hope you all are encouraged this morning by the picture of favorite access that we have uh, in Christ. Thank you, Morris, for preaching the word this morning and doing so wholeheartedly. Um, one thing that Morris said was knowing the, our eternal reality, knowing that we'll be able to stand before our king, uh, means the things and the trials that we face day to day are doable. And one of the things, it's, it's doable because God gives us one another to walk with. He is a big blessing for us in, in being members of one another as a church. And so uh, one thing at the end of every service, service almost every time at this point, we encourage you all to, to take part in small groups, to, to live life with other people, to walk through those trials because it's in those uh, relationships that, that God makes himself known and he um, helps with encouragement. Um, we're supposed to have edifying speech for one another where we build one another up. So if you're not a part of a small group, we want to encourage you to do that. Also, don't forget about the swim party tonight. Unless it just absolutely gushes and there's lightning and stuff, we're going to make this thing happen. Um, but if, if it does get bad, we'll send out a, a message on the point. Y'all stand and we will pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for the blessing of being able to gather and to hear the word preached. We thank you for um, Christ who gives us access that we would otherwise not have. I'm thankful for the reminder today that we are not born into it. We cannot earn it, but we have it as a gift that exists only in Jesus. I pray that that would make us grateful and humble as we walk. And I pray that it would also make us eager to share such good news with others. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great day.